I'm Teresa Wiesor, your host of One in 10. In today's episode, how accurate is memory after 20 years? I speak with renowned memory researcher, Gail Goodman, who's also the director of the Center for Public Policy Research at UC Davis. Over the past two decades, and in many cases because of statute of limitations reform, many adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse have come forward to seek justice, disclosing painful memories of traumatic events from decades before. And while thankfully the general public has grown in its understanding of how and why abused children might delay disclosure well until adulthood, a question that frequently comes up in legal proceedings is how accurate and reliable are memories of events long past? Gail and her colleagues set out to empirically test that very question. And the research is fascinating, not only because it's one of the first, if not the first study, to look at this question longitudinally, but also because of the public policy implications. Now, I know if you're a forensic interviewer, a prosecutor, a victim advocate, you're on pens and needles to find out the findings. Well, to find out, you're going to have to take a listen and join our conversation. Gail, welcome to One in Ten. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. So you've been investigating the relationship between trauma and memory for quite some time now. And I'm just wondering what first drew you to that work? Oh, well, um, when I started studying child witnesses, it seemed like a natural issue. If you want to understand victimization and the effects of victimization, you pretty much have to study trauma and, and memory. Uh, my original training you know, was in um, more standard memory development work and cognitive mm. development work at mm. UCLA. Um, but when I uh, got into my postdoctoral studies at the University of Denver, um, I started taking law school classes or sitting in on them and then discovered the issue of child witnesses. Um, and of course, you know, trauma just came up pretty quickly. So, you know, over the years now, a significant body of research has developed and you've been a big part of that on uh, trauma and memory and about how children remember and recount their abuse. I'm wondering, you know, when you think about sort of seminal research findings about uh, particularly children who've experienced abuse and how they remember that, what would you say are some of the ones that really were sort of turning points in our understanding of trauma and memory? I guess I'd say before I did my first studies, where we looked at uh, children's memory for stressful medical examinations, which is not, of course, the same as abuse, but it was... Uh, it was novel because people hadn't studied from a scientific perspective where they had an actual recording of what happened. Uh, people hadn't studied victimization type situations or trauma and memory type situations in children. So one turning point was just starting those studies, um, which kind of opened the door to the issue of trauma and memory. But also um, at that time, or shortly after, uh, some of the big preschool cases started to get a lot of attention. Yes. And, um, you know, my lab was one of the few that really had studied issues of trauma and memory in, in children. 
Interesting. Yes, the McMartin cases and other ones that live so large and the sad memories, uh, you know, of the field, but that we also learn so much from as yeah. well. I'm just wondering, you know, I remember back when some of the earlier studies were being done on children and memory, there was a lot of, even though they were trying to study sort of the, how kids remembered and were able to recount abuse, but they were using things that were very unrelated to study it. So it was like, do you remember a clown coming in the room? Or do you know what I'm talking about? They, they, they just were so different from what kids actually experience and what we're asking them to recount in a forensic interview that I think I remember feeling when I saw the first study that seemed to actually relate to the type of work I was doing as a CAC director and, you know, in a children's advocacy center, I just remember feeling such a sense of relief that there was something more than, you know, let's look at something that's totally unrelated and try to sort of draw conclusions about how particularly small children remember, you know, episodes of abuse what is it you think, you know, because the field has advanced, you know, since those early days, thank goodness. What do you think, when you think about what are misperceptions or misunderstandings that you feel like may still exist in the field that you hope that research and conversations like this and other things overcome, things that people just don't really get, even child abuse professionals, about Childhood memories of abuse. Well, that's a really good question and very, very broad in a way. Um, you know, I, again, my training um, originally is in memory development, and so um, I still follow a lot of that work. And I often see people in the field kind of relating their work, even on word lists or things that are, like you say, <laughs> very contrived. You know. Uh, very neutral or fun kind of events and uh, trying to relate that to these complex situations of children who have uh, possibly experienced abuse and possibly, you know, for extended periods of time where it's very invasive, it's a, a, a taboo event against their bodies. And um, that overgeneralization of the research that's just looking at uh, basic memory functioning in the laboratory. I really, um, you know, share your concerns uh, about the generalizability of a lot of that work. That said, some of my early studies where we looked at children's memory for stressful medical procedures, you know, people have said that's also unlike abuse situations uh, where, you know, it's socially sanctioned to have a doctor do things to you. It's It doesn't have the same secrecy or taboo quality. And um, uh, Carol Peterson has conducted research now where she's looked at children's memory for uh, medical examinations when there's been emergency medical intervention because of you know severe injury versus sure. memory for the actual injury. And oh, yeah, and finds that when you're looking at memory for the actual injury, you have even stronger memory that lasts mm. even longer than for the medical examinations. Uh, which were also stressful. So um, that personal significance and possibly, you know, in her case, there may be other factors like even talking about the event, because again, you don't necessarily have the same secrecy issues. Um, you know, just uh, some of those factors though are really understudied and can be very important. 
know, one of the things I was thinking about is the fact that, you know, I think a central important finding that we have now that we didn't some time ago is that traumatic memories encode differently. Just that, just that was an enormous leap in the field, you know, understanding that. There are a number of factors about why that's true. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Why is it that kids, we're going to turn more to your research article specifically in a minute, but why is it that kids do remember traumatic events differently than they do other types of events and also surrounding detail that's not specific to the trauma? Again, that's a really good question. So there is a lot of debate and it's still being researched in the field of how children encode and then remember uh, traumatic events and whether it is different from memory for non-traumatic events. And so that is still pretty highly Up for debate. <laughs> um, I am of the opinion, like you, it sounds like, that um, there are differences, yes. important differences. So on the encoding end, there are studies that verify that you have are somewhat more tunnel vision um, for a traumatic mm-hmm. event so that your attention gets focused on the main stressor. Um, that can lead to worse memory for more peripheral detail. But even that's debated because sometimes you have a child focusing on detail that for them was important and that adults might consider peripheral or might be even peripheral to the legal case. So sometimes there's a difference in what is central to the child versus to the adult. But you do see this often narrowing uh, of attention and uh, better memory, therefore, for the traumatic event. There is also the factor of whether the event is related to your survival and your personal well-being. Mm. And yes. those kind of events tend to be remembered better in most people. There are individual differences, though. So that complicates the matter even more because for many people, you have this better memory for traumatic events, but not for everybody. Uh, If you're avoidant of the memory and your parents are telling you not to think about it, to move on, uh, depending how you cope, you know, with, with the memory, uh, you also can get uh, a suppression kind of effect. You were talking about personal significance also as important. Can you just explain? I mean, I know it sounds kind of obvious what it is, but in the context of this, it has a specific meaning. Can you just talk about why does personal significance matter when it comes to memory? Oh, yeah. Well, there are, again, there's debates about all of these factors. (laughs) (laughs) Of course there are. Of course there are. Yeah, because they're all fascinating, you know, and and important. So, um, some people take an evolutionary perspective where they feel that if you look at our past, it's been especially important to remember negative events that have personal survival significance or that have reproductive significance. Because, you know, if you think of Darwinian theory, those are, those are, yeah, perpetuating the species. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that that continues even in us today, according to this view, this evolutionary view, that we are better able, you know, we're basically tuned, it's called, in our biology to remember things better that are um, more survival relevant. Arguably, abuse is survival relevant or relevant to procreation. We also seem to have uh, in our neuroscience, in our brains, you can actually detect that when people are 
remembering more traumatic emotional kind of experiences, you get a certain brain network that is more active, often involving the amygdala, where you get more response there as well. So there is some evidence that our brains are set for this. Again, you can have um, a suppressive sort of, uh, I'm using the word suppressive rather than repressive because that carries so much baggage use the word. Yes, it does. (laughs) Suppressive um, response about that possible brain signal. Again, if there's a lot of debate about about that. Yes, as with everything else, right? So and I want to turn to your research article. So when when I saw this research article, that was the reason we reached out to you. I just was fascinated by it, because it's one of those things where it's just so rare that you have the opportunity and it's taken to try to test this idea about what somebody remembers accurately about a traumatic event and its disclosure from 20 years before. And so I'm going to let you set it up for our listeners a little bit, but I want to start with the question of what made you decide to dig into that? Because it just... I was like, why hasn't anybody done this before? This is just so fascinating. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I can tell you why people haven't done it before. It's incredibly hard work to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, I've just been so fortunate to have the right people in my laboratory who, who are so devoted, you know, graduate students who are so devoted to these, these topics, um, and also to have colleagues who, who are as well. So that particular study where um, we looked at memory 20 years later, it started with a phone call that I, uh, I heard a message from one of my colleagues, Mitch Eisen, who was working in this unit where they had uh, hundreds of children going through in, in child maltreatment cases, alleged child maltreatment cases, where the, the courts were asking for a, a, a professional evaluation of the, of the children's abuse claims are the DCSF, the Department of Child and Family Studies workers concern, regardless of whether the children had disclosed yet. And um, the children were in that unit for five days being evaluated. It was a residential unit, was very special at, at the time. The Mitch Eisen who worked there had the idea to uh, look at the children's memory and suggestibility. He had read a study that I, I had done with Dr. Karen Sawitz, a very beloved mm. colleague, a brilliant person, yes. who um, we had studied memory for uh, gentle touch in children, which again was a first. So he had read that and he realized that we had an opportunity to look at those kind of issues in this traumatized sample uh, because they did an anagenal examination as part of the evaluation at the center. So we did that study. Um, which was funded by the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect. That's published, and you can read it, a couple of papers out of that study. And then uh, Mitch and I always wanted to do a longitudinal study of that sample. And uh, we proposed it a couple of times to agencies to do a longitudinal study, but the children hadn't yet reached the age of majority. And it was very okay. difficult to get consent for research for youth who had not reached the age of majority. So we had to wait longer. <laughs> I love that. <those. laughs> so that 
true determination. You guys just yeah. waited it out. We did. And uh, the, so the children had reached the age of majority by the time we could do the study. And that ended up to be 20 years later. It just turned out it was such a timely issue then as well because of the changes in the statute of limitations and a lot of uh, adults coming forward saying that they had had child sexual abuse in their childhoods. So the, the timing was, um, again, quite right for that. Well, and aside from timing, just such an interesting sample in that because it was residential and because he did have them for five days, there were all these battery of test results that you also had that, you know, just for our listeners, I mean, it was everything you could think of under the sun. And it was really interesting when you read the research article, just even, even that, you know, just was such a rich repository. And I can see why you and your colleague were very excited to look at that. I'm wondering, you know, what were your hypotheses going into the study? You know, what did you sort of expect to find in these now young adults who you're asking, or maybe older adolescents, however you want to frame it, who you're trying to determine what they really actually did remember about that original disclosing event? Right. So, um, we had several hypotheses, but I need to um, step back a, a second here. So in order to get the grants um, to fund the research, because it is expensive research, um, yes. I, I was very fortunate to have a doctoral student in my laboratory named um, Deborah Goldfarb, who herself is, um, is an attorney who had worked for several years as an attorney and was getting her PhD in developmental psychology. So we realized that um, it would be very helpful to have pilot work um, on on the sample. So the original sample that uh, Mitch Eisen and I uh, had worked on back in the day um, was basically two main studies. Uh, One that he had started more on his own. And um, we looked at that subsample and uh, were able to get a hold of 30 of the people who uh, had been at the unit and had been tested originally. And then we could them up and look at their memory. So in, in terms of hypotheses there, you know, we of course had age as a factor uh, that originally mm-hmm. was important. And of course, after years, it was age at time one at the unit, not necessarily age now that they're adults, because adult memory is a little more stable for that age period that we were looking at, but their age when they were encoding the event. So when they were children at the unit. So whether they were older versus younger children at the time that they were originally being right, assessed. Right. And these children ranged in age originally at the time they were being assessed from three to 17 years of age. So it was a wide, a wide range. range. I, I think our publications deal with the there weren't many three-year-olds or we weren't able to find them again, but I think the publications deal with four-year-olds to 17-year-olds. I'll have to look it up. But um, so we had the age hypothesis. There was also um, some literature that would indicate that the more traumatized the um, sample was, the better they would remember what occurred. Um, I believe we hypothesized that as well. 
and then we may, uh, you know, you can look at the article. <laughs> I have a t- more than once. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but we we may have had a gender. I can't remember whether we had a gender prediction, but you could one could predict gender differences as well with females being more likely to remember it or disclose at least what occurred. So those those were some of our hypotheses for that original study, which uh, was published in Clinical Psychological Science with an N of 30, which is not very many. (laughs) But fortunately, they published it. But now we have just uh, gotten accepted the bigger sample. So we used those 30 people to get the funding to do a bigger study. And we um, actually just yesterday, I got the notice that the... uh, the study is accepted for publication again in clinical psychological science that has a congratulations. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much. Um, it was, it was, uh, it went through a lot of, you know, uh, revisions and questioning by reviewers and, but we, we, you know, we're determined. So we get these things published. Um, and, um, you know, the reviews just make the studies better anyway. So, uh, make the write-up better. So, um, anyway, we, um, we were looking there at the type of forensic interview that led to mm. the most accurate statements. And yeah, so um, it turned out <laughs> Mitch Eisen, who again was my colleague who worked at the unit, he had the foresight really to make a videotape of the unit you know, not of any um, children having the anal genital examination. Obviously, you know, you wouldn't want to have that on videotape. He had made a videotape that looked at the, you know, the unit kind of walking through the unit, looking at the walls and the rooms of, other than the anal genital examination room. He came up, you know, he showed me years later that he had that videotape and gave it to me. And I was like, oh, my, oh my God, we can use this, like, this is yeah, great. To, as a context reinstatement. Um, yeah. after 20 years. So, um, so we proposed to have three interview conditions. Uh, one was of the, uh, an FBI uh, based interview that is called the flexi. And it's kind of a standard police type interview of who, what, where, why, okay. how kind of interview. And then we had the cognitive interview, which is a, a interview for mainly for adults, but it's, there is a child version. But there's the cognitive interview, which is based on principles of cognitive psychology that goes through a lot of instructions about how the witness is in charge, the interviewer doesn't know what happened, the person is supposed to just give mainly a free recall account without interruption, and it uses mental reinstatement, which is you know thinking back about the event, closing your eyes, kind of reliving it, uh, so we had that mm-hmm. interview. And then we also had the one with the videotape, the cognitive interview with all those same reinstatement principles, but also the physical context reinstatement of looking at the videotape. And basically, to make a long story short, in the uh, 20-year-old memories, we do find that the cognitive interview, either one of the cognitive interviews of those two I just described, seems to help the witnesses be more accurate specifically on um, what we call correct omission errors. So let me tell you what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Please. It's not usually even indexed in memory research. 
So if you think about trying to think back to something that happened 20 years ago, a medical exam, because that's what we're looking at, the children's memory for the anagenal examination. That's what we have in detailed documentation of. Um, if you think about thinking back to a medical exam that you had 20 years ago that included even anagenital examination, you might think, well, um, you know, I know that in medical examinations, you have, you know, people check your throat and they check your heart. And so you might have those intrusion errors, even though those didn't happen in this very specialized in a general examination. Um, although it did include some whole body medical issues and examination, it was more focused on child abuse. So the doctor, for instance, looked for um, scars from whips on these children, looked for burn marks, um, and then did anagenal swabbing, looking for venereal disease, looked at the children's throats to see if they had venereal disease there. Um, so it was, it was a pretty specialized exam in certain ways. Um, so we wanted to see whether the cognitive interview could help uh, make it so the omission of this expected information was dampened down so that the person was more accurate. And that's what we found is that the cognitive interview, which again is focused more on free recall, open-ended kind of questions, but not exclusively, it, it helps the people dampen down those expectations that, you know, really didn't happen, but could be expected to have happened. Those are the correct omissions. That's interesting. You know, and also if I'm remembering, and maybe this was from the sample study, that as it related to age, more or less as expected, if I'm remembering correctly, older children's memories were somewhat more accurate. Am I remembering yeah. this right? You know, let me let me let you preview <laughs> your own findings instead of me trying to remember and make sure I'm accurate. No, that's great. But accuracy itself is kind of a, um, it, it needs a little uh, defining out. So we find that the younger children are less complete but not more inaccurate. I see. Okay, so they might leave out information, but what they're saying exactly. is accurate. Yes. Okay. So that's that's I think a really important point. It's an important mm -hmm. distinction. Yes. Yeah. And didn't you also find, see, I can't help myself here, <laughs> but I was thinking, I thought that one of the findings, if I'm remembering right, also was that there was more accuracy about the actual assessment, essentially the, the actual T1 event, than sort of peripheral details. Am I, am I correct about that or no? But the, in other words, someone might misremember, was this person's shirt red or blue or something else that happened that day or something of that nature. But when it came to the actual core sort of events, they had more accurate recollection of them. Is that true? Or am I making that up? <laughs> or something in between? <laughs> Maybe my memory is bad. Mine too. Um, but uh, it depends on uh, one's interpretation of those findings. So my memory is that we found that people tended to remember the anagenal exam correctly mm -hmm. um, and to the yes. deficit sometimes of peripheral detail. But the um, a main error was leaving it out. Yeah, it was either saying, I don't remember or I don't know, or we don't know whether it's lack of willingness to disclose or lack of memory. 
or as you're saying, suppressing it or something else possibly? I mean, do you have a, a sort of theory? I mean, you have to test these things, but do you just have like when you when you saw that, what did you say to yourself in terms of, hmm, that's interesting? Yeah. Well, you know, we we uh, we can't distinguish lack of disclosure from lack of memory. And in this kind of area with these kind of topics, it becomes really a, a bigger issue because, it's, you know, when you're dealing with possibly embarrassing material, you could have people just not willing to tell you what they think or what they remember. That's one issue that, you know, we, we are always trying to grapple with. But it does fit with a lot of theory, actually, in psychology and a lot of findings that, you know, people do remember these more personally significant events. The, the intergenital examination was, of course, not the abuse that brought them to the center. That was a whole nother uh, matter that we're still trying to score. But it still was very related to uh, what would happen with these children because it help determine if they went into foster care or they got to go home, you know, or what. So um, the older children, we believe, realized that more than the younger children did, realize the implications more. And you can see that in uh, the other study that we have in press by um, Wu and Ah. Uh, and um, that looked at memory, a 20-year-old memory for the um, clinical interview that took place that was basically the forensic interview, similar to a forensic interview, at least, uh, done by a psychologist or psychiatrist on the staff there, where Wu looked at the victim's memory for that interview where they were asked about, you know, trauma and sex abuse and all those kinds of issues. So she finds that the, Julia Wu finds that the adolescent children were more likely to remember, uh, especially the abuse questions during that interview compared to the non-abuse related questions. Has Julia Wu's research article been published? It's, it's in press in, in the journal oh, in called press. Child okay, Maltreatment. I, I'm making a note to myself now to go dig that one out too and have a look at it. So thank you for, for previewing I can send that. It, I can send it to um, you too. Um, Oh, I would love it. I would love that. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm wondering, you know, now that this seems like this is the gift that keeps on giving, you know, in terms of um, a rich um, area of research. And I'm wondering a couple of things. One, because, you know, a lot of your work has legal implications or implications for uh, criminal law in particular, but others too. When you look at these various um, papers that have been written and the findings that relate to them, what do you see as the implications that we should be paying particular attention to and those who are in the legal field should be paying particular attention to? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, So my research is sometimes used in court in child sexual abuse cases in particular, it's been used in a couple of ways. One of the main ways is as um, rebuttal for people mm-hmm. who are saying, oh, it's you know, likely a false memory. You can't really trust memory. The research is sometimes used by prosecutors who, who want to say, well, you know, maybe you can trust these victims' memory. 
it's almost though like there's two separate issues here. So one is, uh, it relates to my work, especially is memory for real trauma that occurred. Mm. The other mm. is whether mm. in people who have not had real trauma, whether you could get a false memory of trauma. I see. Regarding the latter issue, I think Kathy Pezdek's study where she looked at false memory for enemas and in adults, at least there were zero false memories for enemas. <laughs> that, that does seem like a thing you would not want to make yeah, up. <laughs> exactly. um, that I think is on point even for the false memory uh, testimony. Yes. Um, but in our work, it's more relevant to the legal question of if there was trauma, you know, are the people who are traumatized getting it correctly? getting their, you know, their memory, is it correct? Uh, what factors lead to, you know, more accurate versus less accurate memory of real traumatization? And questions uh, like that, you know, it, there can be an argument in court by defense experts, particularly that uh, maybe the person had some trauma history, but they're accusing the wrong person or they, you know, they're misremembering yes. it. So, there's a variety of ways it's it's used in that my research is used in the, in the legal system. There's also, you know, we've also conducted a lot of research on children's reactions to legal proceedings and courtroom testimony. That research has been used, for instance, when a, a, a defendant wants to go what's called pro se. So when mm -hmm. they want to represent themselves, represent themselves it's a nightmare. want to then cross-examine child victims. Yes, their mm -hmm. victim. So mm -hmm. uh, our research has also been used in that kind of case to argue that this can be uh, traumatic for children to to uh, even see the defendant <laughs> across the way in the courtroom, um, let alone to be. Much yeah. less be questioned mm -hmm. by them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were taking me back for a moment to, you know, uh, one of the really formative cases that I remember from many years ago, which involved two teenage um, young ladies that were questioned by their father who represented himself pro se mainly so he could grill his daughters. It was terrible. They, although, I mean, I will say that our Children's Advocacy Center and the prosecutor did a wonderful job of supporting them. They felt very supported by us, but it was really one of my worst professional memories is watching what felt like abuse happen right in front of our eyes in the courtroom because of what he was doing and his questioning of him, of them. So, so that one is um, an issue near and dear to my heart because I just so remember how, you know, and it's been how many years, 25 years later, it still stands out very vividly in my memory as a terrible thing to watch, even if, though it wasn't happening to me. Yeah, personally. In, in, so. Interesting. Speaking of memory. <laughs> um, <yeah>. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And how things encode. Um, right? but I'm sorry that the victims had to go through that and that you, that you the staff, yes. <laughs> you had to as well. Yeah. Yes, of course. You know, turning to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about the implications for statute of limitations um, related things, because as we know, more adult survivors are coming forward and disclosing now, often even longer than 20 years later, depending on the age of the adult survivor, things that happened long in the past. And what do you see as the implication, not so much for what happens in the courtroom civilly or in terms of um, criminally, but 
Are there things that public policymakers should be thinking about in regard to this as they're really continuing to look at these waves of statute of limitations, reforms, and related issues? Uh, well, that that's, I mean, usually we, uh, our findings are used a lot in the actual courtroom, but it's also, they also can mm. affect public policy. So um, I think one of the issues is about delayed disclosure. So it does seem to be common, not everybody, but Many children do not tell if they're being sexually abused for various reasons. And um, later it can come out into adulthood. Having these statute of limitations extended uh, so it gives longer for civil cases or prosecutions, it can be justified, I believe, you know, based on the memory data. I think for the public policy issue of having laws, for instance, that permit that, those are good ideas. If the laws are based on dissociative amnesia or repressed memory, um, that gets on a little weaker ground. Um, those are potentially important clinical concepts, but they're very hard to prove in the laboratory and have been difficult to base law on. But um, I don't think you, you need to even have those issues come up because the delayed disclosure is sufficient, which is well-documented. It's sufficient for having extending those statutes of limitations. Does that address your question? <laughs> it does. It does. And, you know, I think it's nice when we see examples where public policy and science align or at least don't contradict each other. <laughs> so that's always, that's always a plus. I'm wondering where your research is taking you next, you know, is there something exciting you're working on right now? Or, I mean, it's always exciting, right? Otherwise you wouldn't work on it, but I'm just wondering, you know, what's piquing your interest and curiosity these days? Well, before I answer that, I, let, let me just say that I, I want to make sure I thank the funders. Uh, I mentioned the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect is funding the original Eisen study, but also um, the National Institute of Justice and the National Science Foundation mm -hmm. have both been very important funders for that original work that was the 20-year memory delay work. But the National Science Foundation has also funded some of the newer work that we're doing in the lab as well. You know, one of the projects is looking at actually the relationship between COVID-19 and child abuse, having a traumatic past, mm -hmm. and, and whether that trauma leads to more distrust in government and in officials and medicine and what it, well, that's yeah, fascinating. And um, the National Science Foundation is funding that project. Um, and then we also have another project where I was able to convince the National Science Foundation that um, so much of the literature on children's memory and suggestibility has been about non-familiar adults. So, you, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I kind of started this work, <laughs> but um, unfortunately, um, you know, you can, it's, it's pretty easy in the lab to have a confederate who's someone, say, uh, one of the people who works in your lab or volunteers in your lab uh, and, um, you know, meet with a child and do some interaction and then question the child about it later. But that child, it, it they don't know the person. It's not like 
their parent, yes. you know, or uncle or someone that a neighbor that they've had a lot of exposure to or contact with. It's a stranger. And right. all the knowledge and socio-emotional factors that go into a child's report in a, an abuse case, you know, are, a lot of that's missing. Yeah. So I was able to convince the National Science Foundation that we needed to look at children's memory for more familiar people like their fathers, for instance, or stepfathers. And so that's what we're working on now. Again, Julia Wu is taking the lead as a doctoral student on that work. And, you know, she's just brilliant and terrific. So that helps a lot. <laughs> I can't wait to see that when oh, it thank comes you. out. COVID-19 COVID um, has not been kind to that study because, you know, my laboratory was closed for for oh, a year and a half or so um, where we couldn't bring, oh my bring children and families into the lab. So we've had to do some of our work remotely and figuring out how to test kids' memory remotely and figure out those situations that you could even test them about has been really difficult. I mean, so challenging in so many ways. Well, I'm glad you've overcome those challenges to find a way to do it. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. I'm just eagerly awaiting the next study and hope to have you back on the podcast at some point to talk oh, about thank it. thank you. you. You've been a delight and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to One in 10. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with those professionals you know to whom it can make a difference in their work. And to adult survivors who are listening, I hope you found this episode truly affirming. And for more conversations with the brightest minds working on the problems of child abuse, please visit our website, oneinten podcast.org.